Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The shooter's father says, I didn't do anything wrong. The lead starts right now. The father of the Highland Park Parade shooter explains why he approved his son's guns purchase and reveals that they talked about another mass shooting just hours before the 4th of July parade massacre. And then Brittany Griner appears in a Moscow courtroom and pleads guilty to the drug charges that have led to her being held in Russia. Could this help her get released? Plus, them's the breaks. That's how Boris Johnson put it as he resigned as the British prime minister. But what happens next across the pond is as clear as mud. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we start today with our national lead, the father of the suspected gunman in the July 4th parade attack in Highland Park, Illinois, now tells The New York Post he consented to his son buying guns in 2019, thinking his son would use those weapons at a shooting range. Instead, those guns were used in Monday's mass shooting that killed seven people. And the night before the attack, the father says his son mentioned another mass shooting, the mall in Copenhagen, Denmark. As CNN's Ed Levendoria reports, the public comments come as the father himself could face charges linked to Monday's rampage. In the mayhem of the shooting at the Highland Park 4th of July parade, new details are emerging from a witness that provided key surveillance video, which helped identify the alleged shooter. You see people running, he's just walking. It was a surveillance camera connected to a building owned by Hal Emelfarb that recorded that crucial moment. He says he has video that captured the alleyway the shooter used to reach the rooftop where authorities say he fired off more than 80 rounds on the crowd of parade watchers. We started looking at the camera here. He shows on in the film at 10.07 into, into the alley and 10, 14, 57 seconds coming out. And when he comes out, he's holding an orange bag and the rifle butt or something in the orange bag hits the, hits the guardrail and drops. And he looks at it, and that's when we caught him on his camera, so we knew who it was when he looked back, and then he left. Newly released documents paint the picture of a depressed teenager with a history of drug use and a home life marked by domestic incidents. A report from an April 2019 well-being check noted that he had attempted to kill himself using a machete and that mental health professionals responded to the call. In September of that same year, another incident report noted that he had, quote, made a threat in the household. A person whose name is redacted in the report told officers that the man, quote, stated that he was going to kill everyone. Robert Cremo III admitted that he was depressed and had a history of drug use, according to the report, but told investigators he did not feel like harming himself or others. After that incident, police removed 16 knives, a dagger, and a sword from his house. The father picked up the items later that day, claiming they were his. Documents also detail a troubling 22 calls to police from the home, most of them domestic incidents between Cremo's mother and father. Questions now arise on how, despite this history, the shooter was able to legally purchase five firearms with his father's legal consent, 
which was necessary for any 18-year-old. The alleged gunman's father told ABC News he was not responsible for the purchase. I filled out the consent form to allow my son to go through the process and do background checks, whatever it entails. I'm not exactly sure, and either you're approved or uh, denied. And he was approved. His father later told the New York Post that he believed his son was using the guns to go to a shooting range. My community is in absolute despair, grieving, feeling unspeakable pain uh, due to the hands of his son. And he signed off on the FOID application. Um, and I will leave it to the authorities to address the rest of the question. Authorities say the shooter purchased those weapons, eventually using one to kill seven people and injure nearly 40 other victims. And Pamela, we have a sad update on one of the victims who remains hospitalized. This is news about eight-year-old Cooper Roberts. We are told by a family spokesperson that the young boy is on a ventilator. He has been sedated since the shooting. Uh, he is in critical but stable condition. And that family spokesperson says that the eight-year-old boy took a bullet in the belly and that that bullet severed his spinal cord. Uh, the young boy has not been responsive since he's been in the hospital. As I mentioned, he's in critical but stable condition and the family fears that he could very well be paralyzed if he is to survive. Family? Heartbreaking. Our, our thoughts, our prayers are with his family. Ed Lavendera, thank you. And I want to bring in Eric Reinhardt. He is the prosecutor managing the state's case against the suspected gunman. Thank you for coming on the show. So I want to ask you first off, by signing consent forms, did the father essentially say he would be liable for his son's use of the firearm uh, that he was applying for? Did those circumstances change when the suspect turned 21? Just help us better understand this. Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I want to continue to express my condolences uh, to those who lost loved ones, to those who've been injured physically or psychologically in this terrible and premeditated attack. Uh, Highland Park will never be the same. Lake County will never be the same. I have to commend first responders and, and police officers who ran towards the danger and, and, and then uh, apprehended uh, this, uh, this offender. Uh, I have to thank those people first. To answer your question, um, there's not a, a, a criminal liability that's directly attached uh, to, quote unquote, vouching for somebody else. Uh, but we're looking at uh, all of the evidence. There's a mountain of evidence to go through in terms of who knew what, when. Uh, there's different ways uh, to look uh, at potential criminal liability in this case. I don't want to say much more other than that, but there's not a, you know, there's not a per se uh, violation of law if, you know, you vouch for somebody in a FOID card and then they, you know, they end up doing something terrible like this. But having said that, we are continuing to investigate the case and continuing to explore all options. How do you think his application was even approved to get a gun, even though his father vouched for him, given the amount of incidents at the home where police had to, to go there and in one case taking away some of the weapons in the home? Yeah, the, the Illinois, the Highland Park Police Department did notify the Illinois State Police uh, of these, uh, of many of these incidents or, or of the, the one incident. Uh, and um, uh, the Illinois State Police uh, had that record. Now, you know, at the time that they received the record, there are no firearms in the house and there's no pending application. So that, that, that has to be pointed out. There wasn't a, a firearm aspect uh, to what was being reported in the home. I have to point that out. Uh, the Illinois State Police have a, a statement on their website that explains right. exactly what happened next, and, and I would defer to them in terms of their internal process. Okay. I, I want to talk to you about just the red flags. In so many of these cases, we see time and time again, there were red flags. 
the the shooter was saying things that should have caught attention. The, the suspected killer had disturbing social media posts. And then there was this, this mural of a gunman with a happy face on the back of his mother's house. Now, in hindsight, it is all alarming. But how does law enforcement better link these kinds of warning signs? And in this case, a huge one painted on a house. Yeah, we, we have to always have better connectivity with all of our systems, our law enforcement systems, uh, our court systems, our school systems, our mental health systems in the name of safety. We have to respect people's privacy, uh, but law enforcement and the courts are, are very good at keeping information uh, private uh, in a lot of situations. And, and we can't um, we can't let all of those confidentiality rules uh, allow uh, the left hand to not know what the right hand is, is doing. I'm not suggesting that happened in this case. Uh, I'm making a broader point. Uh, there was no contact with the court system. There was no contact with the prosecutor's office uh, in that 2019-2020 uh, period or, or since. Uh, and so we have to do better to make sure that all of this information uh, is moving uh, towards the Illinois State Police, uh, towards the process that allows people to get firearms. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We also should ban uh, these types of assault weapons. It worked in 1994 for 10 years. Mass shootings went down. We had bipartisan support. We had law enforcement support during that period of our history. We can get there again. We had an assault weapon ban for 10 years. I think we should have one in the country. I think we should have one in Illinois. All right, Eric Reinhardt, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, he is down and out. Boris Johnson steps down as British prime minister. So what happens next is anything but clear. And then last night, he was making the case why he should be elected the next governor of Michigan. Today, he was before a federal judge for charges relating to January 6th. Topping our world lead, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is on his way out. But the U.S.-U.K. relationship is, quote, strong and enduring. That's according to President Biden in a statement this afternoon as he stands firm on a continued united approach to Putin's brutal war on Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says he has lost, quote, a true friend of Ukraine and Johnson. CNN's Bianca Nobila reports from London, where the Conservative Party is left to pick up the pieces. This is the moment he longed to avoid. To you, the British public, I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, Perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Thank you all very much. The culmination of a gruesome 24 hours where Boris saw his government crumble around him. 56 members of parliament from his own party resigned as he desperately tried to steady the ship. Even the newly appointed UK finance minister telling the prime minister to do the right thing and go now, just 24 hours after vouching for him. Do you think this prime minister has integrity? I do. I think he... So we need to know. Well, because he's determined to deliver for this country. In the end, support for Boris Johnson had evaporated and he got the message loud and clear. As we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. It's not known when Johnson will leave the stage, with his team suggesting he may stay on as caretaker prime minister until as late as October. He needs to go completely. None of this nonsense about clinging on for a few months. He's inflicted lies, fraud and chaos 
in the country. It's the end of a premiership mired in scandals, but Johnson's exit leaves the question of who will take his place. Defence Minister Ben Wallace is the favourite amongst members. Newly resigned Chancellor Rishi Sunak is another. Conservatives want to be in power, and that is the question. That's where Boris Johnson seems to be letting them down, but are the alternatives out there? I'm not sure Rishi Sunak really has it in him. They've got to find somebody who brings together both the pro-Brexit and the anti-Brexit wings of the party. And that's going to be very difficult to do. A difficult choice for an already fragile democracy, perhaps one of Johnson's most unwelcome legacies. Pamela, two questions hang heavily over Parliament this evening. First of all, how long will Boris Johnson stay in his position as Prime Minister? Lawmakers are concerned about the decisions that he might take in the interim, conscious that Boris Johnson will want to regain control of the narrative and try and amend his damaged legacy. And the second is, who will take his place? Conservative party leadership contests are notoriously unpredictable. And from right-wing Brexiteers to a former defence minister who took part in a reality TV show about diving, the field is wide open and the future of the Conservative Party and this country is unknown. All right, Bianca Nobilo in London for us. Thank you. WNBA star Brittany Griner pleads guilty to drug charges in a Russian court. Could it be a strategic move to get her released? Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was just sentenced to more than 20 years in prison for violating George Floyd's civil rights. Chauvin pleaded guilty to the federal charges in December, avoiding another trial and the possibility of life behind bars. Chauvin will serve the sentence at the same time as the one he's already serving on state murder charges. And turning to our world lead, WNBA superstar Brittany Griner pleaded guilty to drug smuggling charges in a Russian courtroom today. She faces up to 10 years in prison. The 31-year-old was arrested in February at a Moscow airport after Russian officials say they found less than one gram of cannabis oil in her luggage. The U.S. State Department says Griner is being wrongfully detained. Speaking through an interpreter today, Griner told the court the drugs in her luggage were an accident and the result of packing in a hurry. And her attorneys tell CNN they're hoping the court will now show leniency. CNN's Matthew Chance reports from Moscow. U.S. officials insist they're doing everything they can to bring Griner home. This is Russian justice conducted behind closed doors. Just a glimpse of Brittany Griner towering above her guards, being led handcuffed into the courtroom. The 31-year-old was detained at a Moscow airport in February when Russian customs officials say they found small quantities of cannabis oil in her luggage, an illegal substance under Russian law. Recordings made inside the court capture the female basketball star through a translator pleading guilty to the serious drug smuggling charges against her. But under those laws, which carry a maximum 10-year sentence, the US athlete who told the court she packed the oil in a hurry by mistake could now be made an example of, especially at a time of such strained US-Russian relations. 
and there's concern the Biden administration should be doing more to help the Olympic gold medalist. Is the White House doing enough to get Brittany Griner home? We've had great response recently with uh, BG's letter to President Biden and Biden responding with a call to BG's wife, Sherelle. Uh, we think progress is being made on that front. You know, uh, the coverage of women's sports and the coverage of women athletes is really the concern here. I mean, the question is, would Tom Brady be home? But Tom Brady wouldn't be there, right, because he doesn't have to go to a foreign country to supplement his income from the WNBA. But U.S. officials in Washington and Moscow insist they're doing everything they can. I was able to speak with Ms. Greiner in the courtroom. Uh, she said that she is eating well. She is able to read books. Uh, and under the circumstances, she is doing well. Most important, I was able to share with Ms. Greiner a letter from President Biden, and Ms. Greiner was able to read that letter. It's unclear what was written, but U.S. officials already negotiated the release of one U.S. citizen, Trevor Reed, from a Russian prison earlier this year in a controversial prisoner swap. U.S. diplomats say they're committed to bringing home all Americans, including Brittany Griner and others, who they say are wrongfully detained. Well, Pam, there's no indication at this stage that a prisoner swap involving Brittany Griner is, Griner is in any way uh, imminent. And of course, there's at least one other American, namely, na namely uh, Paul Whelan, that's been in custody here for, for years. He's been in prison here under espionage charges and US officials have been trying but failing over that period to get him released. There has been a statement issued tonight, though, by Brittany Griner's lawyers, uh, law team. Uh, they're saying because she's taken responsibility for what happened, um, because of the small, tiny uh, quantities of the substance uh, found on her were so insignificant, mm -hmm. and because of the contribution she's made to Russian sport and to global sport, they are hoping for a very lenient sentence, Pam. All right. Thank you so much, Matthew Chance in Moscow. And joining us now to discuss all of this and those points raised there, Tom Firestone. He is the former Justice Department legal advisor to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Hi, thanks for joining us. So a senior U.S. official is telling CNN that Trevor Reed, another American wrongfully detained in Russia, was forced to plead guilty just days before he returned home in a prisoner swap. You have extensive experience with the inner workings on the Russian legal system. Do you see this guilty plea as a necessary step before any prisoner swap, potential prisoner swap could occur? I think it was. I mean, that's not a formal legal requirement, but the statements from the Russian government have indicated that they're not going to exchange her unless she, until she was convicted. So I think that they made it a necessary step, um, not a sufficient step, but necessary. So we've still got a long way to go before any kind of uh, prisoner exchange. And as we know, Griner says it was an accident that the drugs, again, less than one gram of cannabis oil, were in her luggage. The State Department describes Griner as being, quote, wrongfully detained, which is a designation that doesn't necessarily mean she's innocent of the charges. But if she's guilty or not of this crime, does that actually even matter here? Well, it matters. If she's guilty, she'll get a sentence. But the real question is what sentence she's going to get. And I think the reason she pled guilty today is because that is a factor that can be taken into account by a Russian court in sentencing her. So I think she's hoping, uh, hoping for leniency based on this. Now, it may well be that the sentence is already predetermined for political reasons and it doesn't matter, but I think that was part of her strategy. Right. That's the question. Was it predetermined? Did she feel she had to, to uh, plead guilty, so forth and so on? Now, Brittany Griner's attorneys say they're hoping the court will show leniency during uh, sentencing because she did plead guilty. 
Under Russian law, she faces a maximum jail term of 10 years in prison for the attempted drug smuggling charge. In your experience, is this something a Russian court is likely to do? Well, they certainly should take it into account. It's part of Russian law that this is a factor to be considered. The most analogous case we have, though, is that of Mark Fogel, who was a 60-year-old American school teacher who was arrested in Moscow with 17 grams of marijuana for medical use. He pled guilty. He expressed remorse. And he got 14 years in a Russian penal colony for 17 grams. So that doesn't bode well for her case. He pled guilty. He admitted everything. Court didn't seem to take that into account. So Mm. we'll have to see. We can only hope that it will be uh, factored in, but not a guarantee. Not a guarantee. She penned an emotional handwritten letter to President Biden in which she expressed fears that she will be detained in Russia indefinitely. To your point, there's clearly concerns that uh, her case could follow suit as others. Greiner's wife and others have expressed concern for her safety while she remains in Russia. Do you think that she is safe there? You heard uh, the embassy, the, the official from the U.S. embassy in Russia, they're saying that she has been eating, that she is reading books. But what do you think? Well, I mean, it's great to hear this, very comforting to hear, but Russian no jail is a good place to be. A Russian jail is especially not a good place to be. Look at what the State Department says in their annual human rights report on conditions in Russian facilities. They say that conditions vary, but overcrowding is common, inadequate medical treatment is common, there have been reports of torture. So it's she's okay today, but you know, that could change at any time. So I think obviously she needs to get out of there as soon as possible. Tom Firestone, thank you. So what happens when the world's breadbasket is at war? CNN is in Somalia, where children are starving to death and the invasion of Ukraine is making it worse. In our world, lead, a ship allegedly packed full of stolen Ukrainian grain has been released from a Turkish port. A move Ukraine calls, quote, unacceptable after it begged Turkey to detain the Russian flagship. A grain is critical to Ukraine's economy and feeds millions around the globe. And a new U.N. report shows the world's hunger problem is growing more dire. CNN's Clarissa Ward reports from drought-stricken Somalia where children are starving and Putin's war is making things worse. On the edge of the Naim camp just outside Somalia's capital, Zamzam Mohammed shows us the fresh graves of those who have died here. One, two, three. There are 30, she says, in total, victims of this country's record drought. As the camp administrator, Mohammed is tasked with burying the dead. From that corner to this one, she says, this line of graves is all children. It must weigh on your heart to have to bury these little children. You feel such sadness when you bury a baby, she tells us. I'm a mother, and I can feel their pain as a parent. Some 500 yards away, Norta Alihumi has yet to visit the graves of her three children. Severely malnourished, they died after contracting measles. I cannot bear to go, she says, the grief I would feel. Aid agencies warn that Somalia is marching towards another famine. 
Nearly half the country is hungry. Some 800,000 people have been forced from their homes this year alone. So two months ago, this camp didn't even exist. Now, there are more than 870 families living here. Conditions are dire, and the world's attention is elsewhere. Thousands of miles from the front lines of the war in Ukraine, the impact of Russia's invasion is being felt here. Food and fuel prices have skyrocketed as Russia's blockade of Ukrainian wheat threatens global supplies. The wheat that is consumed in Somalia, 92% of it comes from Russia and Ukraine when you put together. So the price of wheat has doubled. In some areas, you know, 150% increase. So you had climate change, COVID, but the war in Ukraine is really threatening to push Somalia over the edge. Yes, definitely, yes, yeah. And what about if the war continues in Ukraine, if that blockade remains in place, what impact will that have here? I cannot imagine what will be the impact. The stabilization ward at the Banadir Hospital offers a glimpse of what may be to come. There are no empty beds and many desperately sick children. He's in the unconscious. Dr. Hafsa Mohammed Hassan works around the clock to keep her youngest patients alive. How many years have you been working in this hospital? Eight years. Eight years. Have you ever seen so many children being brought in with malnutrition? No, this is the worst situation I'm seeing. And the number of the cases are increasing day by day. The hospital is very occupied with these cases. Are you overwhelmed? Yeah, it's overwhelming. The situation is overwhelming. In one bed, we meet Hareda Abdi and her four-year-old son, Mohammed. I already lost three children in this drought, she says softly. So you came here to save your son? How do you cope with that kind of loss, to lose three children? How do you get through the day? I can't cope with the situation, she says. I just pray my remaining children will survive. It's a prayer shared by so many women here, one that the world has yet to hear. Part of the problem, Pamela, is that because the world's attention is understandably completely consumed with the conflict in Ukraine, aid agencies have only been able to raise a fraction of the funds that they need to avert a catastrophe. The U.N. saying roughly a third of the $1.46 billion uh, has been raised thus far. And the deputy director of the World Food Program here warning that within weeks, Parts of Somalia will be in a state of famine. Pamela? Mm, that is devastating. Such important reporting. Clarissa, thanks for bringing all of that to our awareness. Mogadishu, Somalia, thank you. And up next, just how much will Donald Trump's White House counsel reveal to the January 6th committee tomorrow? We'll discuss. And we're back with our politics lead today. A Republican candidate for Michigan governor appeared in court over charges related to the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Ryan Kelly pleaded not guilty to misdemeanor charges. Federal investigators say Kelly claimed uh, climbed up through the scaffolding for President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration stage during the Capitol attack and motioned for rioters to advance. Just hours before his court appearance, Kelly defended his actions on January 6th and during a debate with other Republican candidates. Let's watch. 
We were there protesting the government because we don't like the results of the 2020 election, the process of how it happened. And we have that First Amendment right. And that's what 99% of the people were there for that day. And yes, I support President Trump. All right. So what do you think, Sarah? How much could this potentially impact the race? Well, look, Ryan Kelly is basically running on this. He's not running from it. He's not showing any amount of shame. He said it was First Amendment activity, although investigators are saying, you know, you climbed the scaffolding. So that would move beyond First Amendment activity as far as the federal government is concerned. But, you know, he keeps bringing this up. He also brought up that he believes that Donald Trump actually won in 2020. He thinks the election was stolen, even though he's campaigning in a state. Joe Biden won by 150 4,000 votes. And it was very clear on that debate stage that all of the Republicans were trying to sort of one-up each other on how pro-Trump they were, Mm -hmm. how far they were in Trump's corner. So it's clear that, you know, Kelly thinks that this is a good thing for him in a Republican primary. Will it be a good thing for him if he wins and is in the general election? I guess we'll see. We'll have to see. All right. So let's talk more about last night's debate. The Republican candidates were asked, yes or no, do you believe the 2020 presidential election in Michigan was stolen. Listen to their answers. And the answer for me is that yes, the 2020 election in the state of Michigan was fraudulent and it was stolen from President Trump. Yes, just like Mr. Kelly said, they continue to sweep us underneath the rug. They call it a big lie, but the people deserve to know. We don't know what happened in an election where the Secretary of State is cheating. There's no question that there was fraud. All right. To be clear, I've said this a million times. I'll say it again. Even Trump's uh, own attorney general says there was no widespread fraud. We've seen many Republicans testifying in the January 6 hearings that the election wasn't stolen. But it seems like, Alice, when you listen to their answers, like we were talking about earlier, it's like, how how hard can you hit home this lie that, you know, the election was stolen? No, it was stolen even more. I mean, how much of a litmus test is this? Well, clearly in the Michigan GOP primary, it's a huge litmus test. They couldn't be uh, racing to the Trump side of, of the ticket more. And who, the, the real test is who can be more bigly Trump, clearly, uh, by saying that, look, they need to stop this. They need to quit uh, running on grievances of the past and start running on policies of the future. They have 124 days until the November elections. They need to be talking about inflation. They need to be talking about the economy, about jobs, about crime. Those are the issues that uh, voters in Michigan and across the country are concerned with. And and to Sarah's point, uh, him talking about uh, storming the Capitol and exercising his free speech, uh, he didn't like the election results. I didn't like the election results. I didn't uh, storm the Capitol. And and I think that will hurt him. He has risen in the polls uh, as of late. But I think that's going to come back to haunt him as we hear more from the January 6th committee. This seems to be sort of a prerequisite for many Republican candidates. But what I've seen out on the campaign trail is that you can't win on this issue alone. I mean, look at David Perdue in Georgia. You have to additionally be able to run on other issues. I also think that it's worth noting that this issue takes uh, looks different in different candidates. So, for instance, I covered Glenn Youngkin's successful governor's race last year in Virginia. Lots of buzz about him potentially running for president in 2024. He was not out there in this grandiose fashion talking about how the election was rigged or stolen, but he was centering election integrity. That's sort of a wink and a nod, I think, to this issue. So we will see this in many forms, but I just don't think it's salient enough 
to bring a candidate to victory. Yeah. But th I think that's an important point about how even the people who aren't doing the full-blown, it was stolen, almost all of them are saying things like, well, we need to look into it. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it wasn't totally fair. Or, there are concerns. Or people are asking questions. There's very few of them that will actually just say, Joe Biden won the election, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. so it has become so central, and that is obviously extremely concerning, I would yeah. say, um, you know, to, I think to any American, not just, you know, to, to people in the Republican right. Party. Right, they dance around it. Even if they go yeah. come out and say it, they dance around yeah. it. Well, people are asking questions. Well, of course, because yeah. you have leadership <laughs> exactly. in America that is, is continues to push that lie, and now it has become, as you pointed out, a litmus test for Republicans running for office. And this, as we have seen, again, Republican after Republican testifying, uh, saying that, look, the election wasn't stolen. They were trying to tell Trump that, trying to convince him to accept the results, and he wouldn't. And of course, tomorrow, Sarah, uh, former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone is going to be testifying in front of the January 6th committee. It's going to be behind closed doors, but I'm told it will be videotaped and transcribed. Pat Cipollone was at the center of everything in the White House. I, call, I, I covered him for years. He was always there, and especially on January 6th, he was one of the officials in the White House telling Trump not to go to the Capitol, telling Trump to stop the rioters, and now he's going to be talking uh, to the committee. How big of a blow is this testimony to Trump? I mean, it's a huge get for the committee, and it is it is a big blow to Trump. Obviously, there could still be some constrictions on his testimony, but like you, you said, he was just there for everything. I mean, you could spend three days talking to Pat Cipollone and just scratched the surface of the things he saw. You know, he was there when Trump was talking about seizing voting machines, about trying to get states to overturn the election, about trying to, you know, set up some kind of coup at the Justice Department. He was there on January 6th. You know, according to that Cassidy Hutchinson testimony, he was talking about how they were going to get charged with every crime in the universe if Donald Trump got his way and actually went down to the Capitol. So I think that there is a lot that Pat Cipollone could share with this committee, even if there are some limits on what he can testify to. Yeah, and I'm sure the committee will be asking him about um, the fact that he had considered resigning, as we've reported here at CNN, what went into that, because we've had a lot of officials testify to that as well. There is so much anticipation, uh, Kirsten, for him to testify. In fact, the, the Washington Post um, says that the committee, with Cipollone's help, should be able to reach into Trump's inner circle. Trump has every reason to panic. The walls are closing in. But is there a danger in overhyping this? I, I know from talking to sources that he does have institutional concerns, privilege concerns. That was one of the reasons that the committee had to subpoena him because he, he didn't want to voluntarily do this. He wanted to have to come because of a subpoena. So it will be interesting to see how forthcoming he actually is. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have to answer every single question, right? He can say, he can say that he believes that it's privileged. Um, now, what would be privileged would be conversations with the president. Mm -hmm. I don't think other things would necessarily be privileged, but he could just, you know, I don't know. I don't remember. I can't remember specifically what happened. I mean, there are ways for people to do this if they don't want to be helpful. Mm -hmm. There are things that Cassidy Hutchinson said that he could confirm, obviously, because he was part of the stories that she was telling. And so I'm really interested to see if he'll at least do that. Is Corroborate he, he going to, is he going to lie and say it didn't happen? I don't, I don't think he would actually. And yeah. he does, he does seem to be somebody that was pushing back against all the time against what was going on in the White House, did 
often, it sounds like, offer to resign or talk about resigning. Uh, it doesn't sound like it was maybe the best experience of his life. Um, <laughs> I can and, tell you it was yeah, not. And so I think, yeah, and so he was kind of the person always saying, no, this isn't what, we're, what, it, what we should be doing. And it doesn't seem, and the president seemed to have a lot of contempt for him, actually, you know, based on, on, on what we've heard. So, um, so, yeah, we'll have to wait and see what he feels comfortable saying in a way that does, where he doesn't feel like he is... Um, going against whatever kind of right. ethical promises. Very quickly. I, I've worked with him in the past. He is a, a man of integrity, a, a serious-minded person in the loop in the, the White House, and I think we're going to hear more uh, that to corroborate what Hutchinson said about his concerns uh, that about President Trump's efforts to go to January 6th and the possible um, criminal charges that mm-hmm. that could lead to. The problem is seeking to overturn the election and not doing so are c- two completely different things. Yeah. All right. We'll have to wait and see what comes out of this tomorrow. Thank you to you all. Love having a panel of ladies. <laughs> and coming up, what Blisser sits down with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Hear what he has to say about the state of the war. We'll be right back. W. Kamal Bell is back with a new season of United Shades of America. And here's a preview. What is woke? I don't know what that means, so (laughs) I can't answer either way. (laughs) I feel old just like hearing that word, because honestly, I know Did you it's, say I feel old just hearing that word? <laughs> yes. Did I do yet? <laughs> I know, I'm only 16, yet I don't really understand like some of the slang terms nowadays. So it's not a word that you're using in your, I mean, I'd be shocked if it was, yeah, but no. it's not a word that you all are using. No, it's a word used against us. It's a word that's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not woke enough to know what non-binary means or what any of that means to use your pronouns. I identify as a TAC helicopter. I use it, its pronouns. Mm. (laughs) W. Kamau Bell, thank you so much for joining us. We also want to note you have a new book out called Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book coming out July 19th. So let's talk about United Shades of America. In this first episode, you tackle the term wokeness, as we heard, and the concept of critical race theory. Why these issues first? You know, I think that uh, there's times in this country where we are distracted and people are intentionally trying to distract us from what's going on. There's so many huge problems in this country, and yet so many people want to focus us on woke and critical race theory as a way to distract us from solving the huge problems. So I'm hoping this is a way to sort of clarify what critical race theory is, to understand that woke is not a real thing and that it is just something that is being used against, like these kids we talk about, and that we can get focused on, like, the major problems in this country that are so clear around us. So what are other topics are you covering this season? We're doing one about California wildfires. We're doing one about uh, Asian Americans in response to the Stop Asian Hate movement of 2020. Uh, We have an episode about athletes and mental health. Uh, And we have an episode uh, in uh, Native American country talking about the land back movement. What do you want viewers to take away from watching? Uh, That America is still a negotiation. That America is not locked in. Whether you think America's great or America's not, it is still an ongoing negotiation. And and that we all need to get into this fight. We cannot rely on the government or other forces. We all have to get out there. And as my book says, do the work. What do you think will surprise us from watching, especially this first episode about critical race theory and, quote, wokeness? 
I think you'll be surprised to find out that uh, critical race theory is not what a lot of people have been led to believe it is. A lot of people think critical race theory is some sort of thing that that secret black Marxist groups are trying to introduce into the schools when it actually is a high-level graduate theory about the law that your kids would only come across if they were in law school, not in their elementary school or high school. And how about wokeness? Uh, that like a lot of slang that black people invent, it eventually gets taken by white people and twisted into something we don't recognize. That's all wokeness is. Slang that we invented that just means, hey, be educated. And I think we should all agree that being educated is good, right? All right. W. Kamau Bell, thank you for joining us. Be sure to tune in to the all-new season of United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. And I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Have a great rest of the day. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.